This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Ghanam. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Welcome to our listeners and our viewers from the Bay Area and beyond, from uh, the Bay Area to Palestine and throughout uh, the internet. This is Jess and Jamal on Arab Talk, and we are continuing to provide our show in our shelter in place in Northern California and Jamal, as as you know, where we're uh, broadcasting from in Northern California is one of the hot spots right now in California, possibly even in the United States. We'll be getting to that later. The big news today has to do with the illegal Israeli annexation plan and theft of more Palestinian land. We really have a great uh, interview today with Diana Butu, and uh, it's going to stimulate a very intense discussion as we talk about the Israeli attempt to uh, steal more Palestinian land on this day. That's right, Jess. And uh, let's listen to Diane, and then we'll talk about it uh, later. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's coalition partner, Benny Gantz, has recently said that a uh, July 1st target to begin discussing proposed annexation of occupied West Bank uh, that was not sacred now. The remarks, according to Reuters, were made during a meeting with U.S. Ambassador David Friedman and White House advisor Avi Berkowitz, threw doubt on prospects for a unified Israeli approach to President Donald Trump's peace plan. The Trump administration once again on board for the plan, which uh, envisages Israel annexing uh, Israeli colonial settlements and the Jordan Valley and a Palestinian state established under strict condition, conditions elsewhere in the West Bank. Joining us from Palestine to discuss this and more, Diana Buto. Diana Buto is a lawyer specializing in negotiations, international law, and international human rights law. Earlier in her career, uh, Ms. Buto worked as a negotiator on the Israeli-Palestinian negotiations, serving as the only female negotiator during her five-year tenure. Welcome to Arab Talk, Diana. Thank you, Jamal. It's nice to be back. So let's start uh, with the basics. What's this Israeli unilateral annexation entail? And is there any legal basis for it? Is there any legal basis? Absolutely not. Look, the, the first rule of international law is that you can't take territory by force. In other words, you can't steal another the land of another country. And the reason that you can't do that is that this is the primary way of stopping wars, that if you want to encourage war, you allow countries to take over one another, to invade and take over. And if you want to discourage war, then you have that as a, as a basic rule of international law. So, uh, so it's definitely not legal. And this is why we see that there's been so much uproar about it. Now, what does it entail? I think, Shaman, I think it's important to keep in mind the difference between what's going to happen on uh, June the 30th versus July the 1st. In Israel, there have always been two strands of thought. One strand of thought, which has been led by the uh, labor government, was always a strand of thought that said, do whatever you want to do, but just don't, um, just don't do it out loud. In other words, build as many settlements as you want, put as many checkpoints as you want, steal as much land as you want, but don't be bold about it. 
And the other approach, which is the uh, the new Likud approach, this is the Netanyahu, is to is to to do it and to do it loud. And uh, and so the difference between June the 30th and July the 1st is simply that we see that this Netanyahu government is going to, to, to do it out loud. They've been doing this for the past 53 years. What's the this? They've been stealing Palestinian land, building settlements on that land, uh, stealing Palestinian water, putting up checkpoints around Palestinian towns, blocking off Palestinian access, kicking people off, uh, demolishing homes, kicking them off their land. This has been going on for 53 years. The only difference is that now they're going to announce it formally rather than the way that it's been done for 53 years, which is just on the ground but never announced formally. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. And many Palestinians and, and others around the world would argue that uh, the annexation is merely a formality for what uh, has already been happening on the ground in uh, the occupied West Bank. I yes. mean, it's uh, the Palestinian Authority, basically, if we talk about Area C, uh, has no control over a Area C, and, and it's just now they're just going to formalize it and, and codify it. Uh, yes. So, so uh, we, we heard in May 2019 that the Palestinian Authority uh, had plans to cancel all bilateral agreements with Israel and the United States. I mean, this was a major announcement. Is this really happening on the ground in reality with, uh, for example, with security coordination or, or is just hot talk? Because that's what people in the diaspora, they just basically think, yeah, it's just, uh, this is all hot talk. They're not going to do anything about it. Look, it's, it's hard for me to say uh, because I'm not in that security establishment, but from what I see from here, it actually has halted. Now, um, what that means is is a is an entirely different thing. One of the main problems, Jamal, was not that just security collaboration; it's that ev- that Israel turned everything into security collaboration. So, what do I mean by that? If you wanted to get a permit to get treated for cancer. Um, in a hospital, you had to go through a security screening by by both the Palestinian Authority and by the Israelis in order to be able to get that um, to be able to get that treatment. And so we have to ask ourselves, why was this coordination, this collaboration, in place in the first place? And the reason was that it was thought that this was going to be a temporary thing for five years, and then. Um, it would move on. But what we've seen is that over the course of the past 27 years, everything now falls within the realm of security. And uh, so I'll give you an example. Israel does not allow into any Palestinian hospital, any radiation equipment. So that's not, so that includes in the West Bank, except with the exception of East Jerusalem, and it includes in the Gaza Strip. So if you have any type of cancer that needs to be radiated, you have to get an Israeli permit to be able to get treated. What that means is that it, get, it falls within that, as I was mentioning, the security loop, so that everything falls within that realm. And what, what we're seeing now is with the, with the, the cutting off of, of security coordination, security collaboration, which should have happened a long time ago, 
that we are in fact seeing that there are some people who are unable to get treated. They're, uh, they're unable to be able to, to get the necessary medicines. But I think that we have to step back and we have to say, we have to put the blame where it actually belongs, which is with Israel. This is an, is an issue that Israel has been demanding. We're the only people on earth where the, where the occupied has to give security to the occupier, where the occupied have to prove themselves worthy of being able to, to get any health care and so on. And so, yes, on the ground, we are seeing that it's been halted. But my fear is that because everything is turned into a security realm, that there soon is going to be pressure that's brought to bear on the Palestinian Authority to resume. And once it resumes in one sector, such as health or business, it's going to undoubtedly resume in the other sectors and what as well. And this is why we need to have a totally different strategy, one that breaks this, com- this connection completely. We know that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu and the Likud, they have their own agenda. However, we've been hearing uh, more voices now, uh, especially in the United States, um, uh, even with the uh, uh, mainstream U.S. Uh, Jewish groups like APAC, they've been struggling to defend uh, the Israeli annexation. Uh, 190 U.S. congressmen and congresswomen uh, have objected to the annexation, uh, including, I think, about 10 or 12 uh, Democratic senators, not the Republicans. Is this making any impression on Netanyahu or is it throwing any kind of a hurdle in their plans? Do they care, for example, now that that the Jewish diaspora is not in agreement or, for example, that uh, Donald Trump might lose the election in November and then you have a whole new administration? Look, as you know, there's good and there's bad to to this. Um, Let me start with the bad. The bad is that the only reason that people are signing on to this letter is because, as I mentioned, uh, this formalizes the apartheid that we've been living now for 53 years, and that they have a hard time swallowing. They want to make sure that there is apartheid on the ground, but it's not formal. They want to make sure there are settlements, but it's not formal. Um, They like the status quo because the status quo allows them to live in the fiction that there's going to be two states, and it allows them to live in the fiction that there isn't apartheid. That's the bad. The good part of all of this is that in the past, and, and you'll know this better than I do, is that that um, APAC and all of these organizations used to boast about how there was no daylight between them and between either of the two major political parties. Um, that uh, when it came to Israel and the United States, that the two were lockstep with one another. And now we are seeing daylight. We are seeing that there are people who are willing to put their their names on the line and go against something. Um, And that's important. Now, is this having an impact on Netanyahu? The answer is no. Netanyahu does not care for the diaspora. He doesn't care for what's what's uh, what's what's going on, um, you know, outside of he just he doesn't care. What he cares about is that this is a perfect window of opportunity. Um, and the perfect window of opportunity is for him to say that uh, now uh, we have this period from, from July the 1st until the election in November. Um, the Trump administration has given a green light to all of this. And on top of that, we have um, 
Germany that's going to be heading the, the EU um, will also be in the Security Council. This is the time, if ever there is a time, this is the time to do it. The only disappointment for them is that uh, your country, Canada, did not get a seat on the Security Council, which uh, historically, at least uh, this uh, government and the government before it are very supportive, supportive of uh, the Israeli occupation. Now, you've mentioned apartheid, and this is something that we've been talking about and people have been saying, I mean, I mean by we, people, probably Palestinian-Americans, people in diaspora and others, They've been saying, look, what we have on the ground is apartheid, and there has been utter denial. Now, I've been seeing also some Israeli politicians warning Ehud Barak, uh, I think Livni said something about, you know, we're heading towards apartheid, all these warnings. And, and this is not making an impact at all, even former prime ministers and former foreign ministers and so forth. And, and, and where does the Israeli left stand with this? Where, where is basically the public? Then we saw, we saw also some demonstrations in Tel Aviv, and that is all meaningful, uh, not, doesn't have any meaning. No. Um, actually, Jamal, it's interesting uh, living here. I was just in the West Bank the other day. And the, the signs that you have in the West Bank or at the settlements and in Jerusalem are um, signs that are actually pointing the other way. The, the signs read um, uh, the equivalent of annexation, but they use a different word. And then they say, do it right. And they write it in English. Do it right, meaning do it the way that the right wing wants it done. Mm -hmm. And do it right, meaning do it in its entirety, do it correctly. Wow. Um, and so it, this is not this. This is the this is the alternative. Um, I, I do want to say a couple things about the, the the opposition. There are two types of opposition now inside Israel, um, opposing annexation, not opposing limited annexation, but opposing annexation. The first type is is uh, obviously the people who who are um, supporters of the of the joint list in one shape or another, or Palestinians and people who are very much opposed to land theft, etc. And that is um, that is not an in, like inconsequential number. It's actually quite a number of people, but they're mostly Palestinians mm -hmm. and they're Israeli um, very, Israeli left wing supporters. The other opposition though is the opposition that I think uh, you're talking about which is people who are who are not ideologically opposed to annexation they just don't want to face consequences for it and that would be the Livnis, the Ehud Baraks etc so for them these are the same people who put into place the apartheid system as we right. saw the highest number of settlements go up during Ehud Barak's time uh, Livni also made sure that the settlements were a common feature of, of when she was in uh, government. So these people are opposed to annexation because they believe that it's going to lead to um, one state and that it's going to lead to international repercussions, but they're not opposed to annexation because it's illegal. They are opposed to annexation because they're afraid of the what the impact will be on Israel, not because it's harmful to Palestinians. Uh, do you think they, they are worried, for example, from um, statements made by the European Union uh, as far um, as, uh, you know, if Israel proceeds with its annexation? Or do we actually believe the European Union that it will take any punitive measures? I, th 
think that, look, I think the European Union is, is saying all of this because it needs to say all of this, but I don't, I have, I've lost faith. Um, actually, I'm not, I can't say I ever had it, but I, I don't have faith in, the, in them being able to do anything on it. It's, it's very different from their response vis-a-vis -vis Russia and Crimea. Um, when it comes to Israel, we've actually seen that as much as Israel has been complaining about its, uh, its relationship with Europe, that its trade has actually skyrocketed with Europe. It's, mm -hmm. We don't see that anybody's putting into place any measures against Israel. It's quite the opposite, even on something as basic as labeling settlement goods, that um, they've, they've backtracked from their decision, they've, they've backpedaled from their decision. And instead, we see that these goods are entering into the European market um, without being labeled and certainly without, without having to pay duty. And what's worse than this, uh, I, I think you'll probably agree with me, is the steps of normalization that we've been seeing from the Arab world. Um, I, I think this is more disappointing to Palestinians on the ground uh, seeing the UAE and other countries, uh, you know, going ahead with no normalization, in, in fact, almost like green lighting the annexation. Yes. Um, I, th I think, Jamal, it's important to make a distinction between the governments and the people. And, and, and here's where th this is for me, as somebody who lives here, this is uh, very important. For more than seven decades, Israel has gone out of its way to try to get the Arab world to love it. Um, it, 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 like, you know, it tries to, to convince us here that the Arab world loves it. It tries to convince Israelis that the Arab world loves it. And they know deep down inside that it, there is no acceptance. So there's been this project for quite some time of, yes, we want, you know, we are, yes, we're gonna dispossess Palestinians of their land. We're gonna, we're gonna um, kick them out of their country. We're going to, to try to eliminate them completely, and yet we want you to love us. And what they've seen is that for seven decades, that project has just not worked. Now, on the level of the governments, that's something different. And that's where we see that Israel has managed to really go in and, and establish itself as, um, as being, in some cases, essential, even though they're not mm -hmm. essential, uh, to, these, to these Arab governments, everything from uh, security ties to their position vis-a-vis -vis Iran. That's where you see that this that this um, this area is so troubling. That you see these leaders bending over themselves, bending over backwards to to try to um, warm and cozy up to Israel because they have there's a convergence of um, of interests. Now that said, um, we don't see that it's moved beyond that. And mm -hmm. one thing that one of the 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 things I find so interesting is I really do believe that they are, that they are uh, uh, underestimating their, their own public. I hate to, to put you on the spot and have you read in tea leaves, because I know you don't like to do that, but okay, <laughs> July 1st comes. Let's say they, they formalize the annexation, maybe not July 1st, maybe in two months, three months, whatever, down the line. It's formal. What's going to happen in the West Bank? I mean, you know, we, we talked about upper tide. Are Palestinians going to be getting any, you know, I mean, I'm sure, I'll shoot, let's say, are they going to become Israeli citizens? No. Are they going to get no. any special status? 
So far, no. So what the Israeli government has announced or what Netanyahu has announced is, um, again, because he's trying to, to, he's pushing towards the right, um, he's announced very clearly that they will, the people in those areas that are annexed will not get any citizenship whatsoever. And I don't think that they're going to get any special status either, like the East Jerusalemites, you know, where you have a, it's nothing special about it, but when you have a permanent residency status, I don't think that they're going to do that either. I, I fear that they're going to go back to the system that was in place before Oslo and for those of you who don't know the system that was in place before Oslo, what it meant was that if you left the country for any um, period, for any significant period of time, you had to obtain both an exit permit to leave mm -hmm. and an entry permit to come back in. And in this way, there are about 250,000 Palestinians who never ended up getting their um, re-entry permits and people who ended up settling in different parts uh, around the world. So that is my fear in terms of what they're going to do for the residents of these areas um, that they're annexing. Beyond that, and, and this is the part that's also very important, the troubling aspect of annexation is that it feeds into the, to the settlers and, and emboldens them. And I suspect that we're going to see a lot more settler attacks, a lot more settler violence against Palestinians. We're going to see the green light go ahead when it comes to uh, construction of, mm -hmm. of more and more settlements and definitely much more home, many more home demolitions and harm against Palestinians. That's my fear. Yeah, I, I, I think you're, you're absolutely right. I want to switch gears here. Uh, to another important topic, uh, Israel's extrajudicial killings have become symbolic of its disregard of international law and the culture of impunity that surrounds these breaches. And there's this attitude we've been witnessing of Israeli soldiers to shoot first, ask questions later, and you've witnessed back-to-back uh, -back, uh, examples of this uh, just in the, within the past month, the killings of Iyad al-Halla, the uh, an autistic, basically Palestinian, and Ahmed Ariqat, a young man on his way to his sister's wedding. Why is not Israel being held accountable by the international community for these actions? It's like people watch it, they get upset, and then we, we move on to the other story, to the next story. Yeah, yeah. You know, Jamal, it's because um, Israel has dehumanized us. And not only have they dehumanized us, they, they blame us for our own deaths. They um, shoot, it's not even shoot first, ask questions later. It's just shoot first. It's the shoot to kill policy. Nobody is stopping them, even though there's been condemnations by the UN, by, by Amnesty International, by Human Rights Watch, by Palestinian human rights organizations by uh, people around the world. And it's because they have dehumanized us so much that we find ourselves having to, to explain just how human we are. When I, for example, heard about the killing, the murder of Iyad Hallah, and I, um, I visited his, his mother and his sister, they, they went into just painstaking detail to tell me that he'd done nothing wrong. 
and uh, and that he was a he was a good man and and my response was you don't have to do that he was a human being and the fact that we have to prove to israel that he was no threat that a man walking around who doesn't want to make eye contact with with somebody because he is on the autistic spectrum that somehow he's expected to be absolutely human absolutely perfect and absolutely uh, in the way that they have uh, have made us out to be that he can't be somebody who is who he really is this is what this is what it means to to dehumanize somebody is that they have in their minds a certain mold of the way a Palestinian is to look, to behave, to act, to whatever. And if it deviates even just a slight quarter of a centimeter, then somehow he is labeled a terrorist and they are allowed to kill him. And this is where um, we see also when it came to the murder of Ahmed Arafat, I can tell you as somebody who's driven, spent a long time driving um, throughout the West Bank, the fear, the terror that goes in your head when the first thing that you do is you make sure that your your car is is in good shape. The fear and the terror that I've lived through um, when I one time had a a, a flat tire uh, outside an Israeli settlement mm. and being so scared that they were going to come and shoot me, but then knowing that because I am a woman who's not wearing hijab, that somehow I was not going to fit into their into their profile. This is what it means to be dehumanized, that, that we all have to fit within a certain mold. And if we don't fit within that certain mold, then we are terrorists. And other and and you are there's no scope for deviation. And the reason that um, it continues to happen is inside Israel, there's been a large dehumanization project against Palestinians. And inside the in, in the international community as well, um, you know, you see that if an Israeli soldier, an Israeli soldier, a combatant gets mm-hmm. killed, there are com- there are condemnations by the UN. And yet, when you see the life of a 27 year old man extinguished as he's on his way to his sister's wedding, somehow dressed, dressed in his in his suit, exactly that somehow they question. They quit, they have the audacity to question whether he intended to carry out an action against the soldiers. There's never any room for for maybe maybe making a mistake for having a car that this was a car that wasn't even his his car. He had rented it. They, they, it's, there's never a calculation, and the UN will never come out and say this. What what happened one week ago was a crime. They will never do it. I noticed a little a glimmer of hope to make that connections with, of course, you've, you've been uh, watching here on TV what's happening with the Black Lives Matter and the pol- police brutality that now uh, many outlets, not the mainstream ones, but uh, at least uh, uh, what I call alternative media, uh, has been making the connection uh, between the police brutality in the United States, the, the knee on, on, on the neck with what's happening in Palestine. Uh, same images, same brut- brutality. Is this kind of uh, affecting the Israeli Hasbara machine uh, about how peaceful they are and how they have the, the most moral army in the world, as they claim? 
You know, Jamel, um, you have to invest a lot of money and be very delusional to think that Israel is anything is to, to think that Israel has the most moral anything. Um, and that's what they've done. They've invested a lot of money into making this claim. And because of the general um, because of the general way in which uh, they have framed Palestinian lives, um, you know, it's, it's easy for people to, to become deluded if you want to be deluded. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, we're getting to a world where people are, are making the connections. They're seeing that there's a connection between, uh, between the, the, the training that the Israelis are giving and between the U.S. police forces. Now, look, I'll be clear. The U.S. police force doesn't need the Israelis to train them how to be racist. They're racist on their own. Um, but the ad, that added element is something that people are beginning to wake up to around the world. And we've been seeing here um, time and again that at least in protests here that, that the issue of Black Lives Matter and the, the, the support, um, solidarity has been solid for, for quite some time because we know what it's like to be people who are living subjugated. Mm-hmm. Final question. Uh, the ICC and International Criminal Court is about to launch an investigation, or I don't know if they even started with the investigation into war crimes by Israel. Uh, are you hopeful that something's going to happen, or uh, it's just going to be the can, they're going to kick the can down the road again? I'm uh, there's an optimism and a pessimism there. The previous prosecutor um, kicked the can down the road and then um, came to Palestine and, you know, and, and I think was trying to atone for kicking the can down the road. This current prosecutor is, I, I think, also trying to be guarded. I don't think she can continue to kick the can down the road that much. But we do see that it's being caught up in all of these motions and all of the pretrial stuff. And if you look at some other cases that have happened, for example, investigations into um, things that have happened in Afghanistan, that sometimes these investigations take many, many, many years. So I'm not hopeful that there will be a result anytime soon. That's not the issue for me. The issue is that we have broken that taboo that Israel can't be held accountable. And that's the one thing that we see coming out of annexation. If Israel can be sanctioned for formalizing apartheid, then it can also be sanctioned for the informal apartheid that it's been practicing. And that's where we are right now. I wanna thank you uh, for your time, Diana. And I, we didn't talk about also what's happening um, uh, with the Palestinian community with the COVID, part of the international you know, so I know it's been difficult for you and everyone yes. else. So we, I want to also ask you and hope that you and your family stay safe. Thank you. Thank you, Shaman. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's, been, it's been challenging. That's for sure. <laughs> that's the voice of Diana Butu. Um, always has been, Jamal, one of the more articulate and outstanding uh, people speaking about the uh, the the situation in Palestine, obviously, you know, it's in the context of the yesterday, July first was the International Day of Rage against uh, uh, 
the Israeli occupation and apartheid practices and annexation of Palestinian land. And uh, Diana, as true to form, gave a very compelling analysis. That's right, Jess. And then, of course, when we talked about it, of course, the, we talked that even though July 1st was the date, uh, there was no affirmation that uh, the physical annexation will happen, even though, as she said uh, in the interview, that this was anyway, uh, the, the entire West Bank, especially Area C in the West Bank, has always been under a de facto annexation. So, right. so the, the physical annexation, which was supposed to start, uh, you know, to, to launch uh, as of July 1st, has been kicked down the road a little bit because uh, the Israeli uh, government itself is not ready for it. Uh, the government is divided. Uh, the White House uh, is uh, indecisive. And, uh, and uh, the domestic opposition has been mounting. But most importantly, they have witnessed, and we've been witnessing, a lot of rejection from uh, all over the world, especially most recently the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson added his name to the list of foreign leaders denouncing uh, annexation and he a warning in a front page op-ed in the, actually in the newspaper uh, that's one of Israel's largest newspapers there uh, that it would be and I'm quoting here contrary to Israel's own long-term interests you know that uh, his country right. would not recognize any such unilateral move. And uh, France made a similar declaration, other countries. And uh, in, in fact, the, the EU uh, um, made such a declaration saying that uh, the relations and maybe even uh, some uh, restrictions and sanctions right. on Israel will happen. Well, if I think go uh, with this. So right. And I think this is one of the few times, Jamal, and I think in part it has to do with the weakness coming from the White House. But this is one of the few times that there's been almost universal condemnation uh, all over the globe. I don't know of a single country, even the Marshall Islands, that is supporting Israel's attempt to steal uh, more Palestinian land. It is also interesting that we heard that uh, AOC in her comment in the Congress said that she was wanting to possibly tie funding to the Israelis connected to if they annex or don't annex further, or I, we should we say annex, but steal more Palestinian land. So we're even seeing some movement in the Congress right now where people are beginning to speak about this. So it's kind of interesting in this political context that there's so much pushback coming against uh, you know Netanyahu and his ilk. I guess the the issue is there there is a de facto annexation and theft of the land now Jamal so in terms of what Diana said and what's happening you've been reading the Arab press a lot because there's already a de facto kind of theft and annexation of the land what can we really expect in the next couple of weeks or months well, uh, let me first also, you've mentioned Congress, 190 congressmen and congresswomen uh, from the Democratic Party also wrote a letter uh, against the annexation. So they signed, for, they signed on basically a letter right. uh, asking not to go, uh, go through the annexation, including, I think, 10 or more uh, uh, Democratic uh, senators. 
So, so they've been receiving a lot of pushback, meaning um, the Benjamin Netanyahu's government has been receiving a lot of pushbacks uh, as far as, as the annexation. Now, that, this does not mean that he will not go through with it. And exactly. that's where we come with the de facto. I think the whole idea of this whole annexation, this is part and parcel of the Trump's so-called deal of the century, taking, taking, uh, taking us back to that fiasco deal of the century, the Trump slash Jared Kushner's deal of the century. They want to come up with something because, you know, as you know, we've been talking about it for ages. They failed. They couldn't even get the, they couldn't get a couple of token Palestinians. They, they did get some some clown. I, I can't even remember his name who attended. But in general, they couldn't get the Palestinian Authority. They didn't get anyone in a position of leadership. They couldn't get uh, others from Arab countries to sign on to this deal. And now they are coming with this uh, charade, uh, just. Yeah, and this is really interesting, Jamal, because this is occurring in a context of pretty widespread international condemnation of the state of Israel and Benjamin Netanyahu. Um, it may be, for example, that Netanyahu doesn't say a whole lot, but that they, you know, to, to quell the international pressure, that they may not go forward with the public displays of the annexation and theft, but just quietly behind the scenes continue the ongoing theft and appropriation of Palestinian land. That's my worry, that they won't have the fanfare to bring on the condemnation, but quietly behind the scenes continue with the, with the theft. Yeah, well, they've been doing it all along for many years. So since Oslo, uh, they have expedited the construction of settlements, right. the transfer of population. Right. If we talk about now the current uh, uh, Israeli colonial settlers in the West Bank, the number is approaching 900,000. I mean, pretty soon it will be a million settlers living there. When Oslo, when the discussions about Oslo in the beginning of Oslo 1991, we were talking about less than 10% of that number. Right. So that number has jumped by tenfolds. Uh, uh, transferring uh, and, uh, Israelis into illegally, which is a violation, by the way, of the Fourth Geneva Convention, the transfer of population. They've been building more and more settlements. They've been uh, they've built the apartheid wall, isolating Palestinian com communities in, into bantu stands. They've built roads that only uh, privileged Jewish settlers can use and Palestinians cannot use. Right. They have put all the steps. And all the makings and all the ingredients of an apartheid regime, without calling it apartheid, and and basically the whole idea of stealing and saying, okay, we're going to annex. This is just like a move to codify it and accept international, uh, you know, basically get international acceptance to say, yeah, we recognize Israel's sovereignty, and they've got they've gotten the. The, uh, the recognition by the United States, and that's... But anybody the, else? Well, uh, I would say if this went to the, to the uh, UN Security Council, there was a big slap in, in the face for Canada because Canada was not accepted to the Security Council. Nevertheless, Canada, nine out of 10 times, maybe even I would say 9.9 .9 out <laughs> of 10 times, always follows suit, does whatever the United States does. 
So they can get like a country like Canada. They can get some of those few countries that are financially dependent on the United States by twisting their arms. I don't think the UK, they were counting on the UK and they've counted on the UK before, but now I don't think the UK or France, maybe Germany, Germany is on the neutral no, line. No, Germany came out against it also. And so, Angela Merkel, yeah. Yeah, they so they have to be very, it. yeah. So, so that's why they haven't done anything about it. They've set a date. The United States said, Pompeo said, listen, do whatever you want to do. This was the message from Pompeo that Israel has the right. It's her, it's her own business. That's what he's saying. You know, Pompeo, speaking on behalf of the Palestinians, giving away the land of the Palestinians, is not speaking on the behalf of the American government. He's actually giving, you know, the lands, you know, who cares? It's just the same colonial settler mentality. Who cares what the natives think exactly. or feel or whatever? It's the same issue. Oh, yeah, just go ahead, proceed, create facts on the ground. So they are counting on all of this. They weren't counting on kind of like a solid rejection, especially coming from important countries in Europe. And they weren't counting on actually the government itself within Israel is split on the mechanism. Right, And I think if you listen, uh, Diana's Zbuto, she said, there isn't much difference between the left and the right as far as stealing the land because the so-called peace hero of Israel or peace heroes of Israel, uh, Rabin and, and Paris, they allowed the building of settlements Absolutely. During, during their tenureships. Absolutely, yeah. The only difference is that they do it in a way that, oh, we'll talk about peace and we're not stealing the land. This is all subject to negotiations later on. But they green-lighted the building of settlements and the transfer of populations. That's exactly right, Jamal. And uh, I have to also say, in the context of all of this that's going on, the mainstream media in the United States has failed again to adequately account for the apartheid practices of the Israeli government. The op-eds that appeared in the New York Times and the Washington Post and the and the startling, you know, silence uh, in, in the uh, in the news media about the uh, um, Israeli apartheid practices has been deafening this silence. And, you know, the op-eds have been and this was really painful for me to read. I'm sure you saw the same one. The major op-ed from the Washington Post was from an Israeli settler who said that she didn't support the annexation, the formal Alex annexation of Palestinian land. And she's living on stolen Palestinian land. Mm -hmm. And this is the voice that the mainstream media gives to the question of Palestine right now. So it's uh, in spite of all this, uh, movement from the EU pushing back and from the UK, we find in this country continued uh, continued kind of uh, either silence or collaboration with the Israeli apartheid project. You're absolutely right, Jess. And here is the funny thing. The funny thing is that there is a, a more of a debate in the Israeli media exactly. about it. There exactly. is more of criticism among Israel, amongst Israeli politicians, journalists, I have to say. Uh, and now uh, the use of the A word, the apartheid, is very prevalent in the Israeli media. 
this it has been uh, this term has been used by Ehud Barak, by uh, Zivi Livni, and others. And of course, uh, this is uh, uh, used on a daily basis by up in, in op-eds in the Israeli media, and Haaretz, and others. You know, either saying we are in a state of apartheid, or or they're saying well, you know with the annexation we're going to have apartheid conditions. Right here, if you use uh, the word apartheid on CNN, or if you use that word, of course, you can't use it. They're not going to invite you on Fox News. But if you use the word apartheid on CNN, guess what, Jess? You'll never get invited back. You'll never get invited back. And if you're an analyst or, were, you know, just like what happened to uh, people who have been on the channel, right, you'd get fired. Right. So the interesting thing to think about in the future, Jamal, I'm not saying that Biden is going to get elected because I'm still of the opinion that it's a 50-50 chance that Trump will get reelected. I know that's shocking to hear in spite of all the bad things, but I still think it's 50-50. Even if Biden were to be reelected, it'll be interesting to see what happens in terms of his administration's stance in relation to uh, Israeli apartheid because, you know, you see a resurgence of more progressive uh, um, you know, voices within the Biden campaign. You know, he has to in order to, you know, um, get the nomination and go forward. So with voices like AOC, uh, with Congressman Tlaib and others, it will be very interesting to see if a Biden administration is able to do anything um, to stem the, the ongoing theft or change the political dynamics of the region. Well, Biden will be different, but not that different. And yeah. I'll take you back to uh, before he got elected, or I think if he was either he got uh, before, I mean, uh, Barack Obama got elected, he made a very specific statement. Yeah, he was once, a Zionist. And, and yeah. he said, you don't have to be Jewish to be a Zionist, like he, <laughs> he was saying. And I don't know if he was throwing this out there to attract more Jewish votes in this country or what have you or he didn't understand the meaning of Zionism as we understand it. Because if you support Zionism, you support illegal colonial settlement. And you settlement support racism and, and apartheid. And, and, and the usurping of Palestinian land, because that's what Zionist, Zionism is all about. Don't get fooled by there, there, is, there, are, there is the hardcore Zionists and there are the liberal soft Zionists, right. soft Zionists. But at the end of the day, Zionism says that Basically, European Europeans can, can can move into Palestine and usurp the land. And, right. and what happens when you usurp the land? You commit ethnic cleansing. And then Zionism also believes that this should be a Jewish state, which means that everyone who is not Jewish in Israel, meaning Palestinians, who form, by the way, more than 51% of the population uh, of the inhabitants between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, these are second-class citizens. And that's, that's right, and that's apartheid, and that's the Jim Crow that the laws that they wanna they wanna pass. So, so I'm not too excited about uh, you know seeing or guessing what Biden is going to do. I'm more excited about people around him putting some pressure uh, exactly. if he's going to listen to them or not. So I want to uh, switch uh, gears here just to the. Uh, some important, I think, important uh, news story, because we've talked about this before, is, uh, hey, guess what? Today, they arrested Gislan Maxwell. Finally. The, 
the the social elite, the British social elite, an heiress uh, to the Maxwell fortune, who became a confidant of the disgraced uh, Jeffrey Epstein, who committed, of course, suicide. The story just keeps getting. It's just like unfolding like a Hollywood movie. But it's related, movie. Jamal. Speaking of ardent Zionists, if you look at who her father was well, and what she that, grew up in. That's the big story for me is that, of course, you know, just to give people who haven't been following the story, she was arrested in Bedford, New Hampshire, around 8.30 a.m. Eastern Time this morning. And she, they've been looking for her, and apparently she bought property in New Hampshire under a uh, fake corporation, and she's been lying low there, and then finally she got arrested. And we know the list of Epstein's clients or clientels included from, you know, President Clinton flying on his plane. Dershowitz. Dershowitz to Ehud Barak. Uh, Robert Kraft. Farmer Prime Minister of Israel. But you're right. There is that connection with the Israeli Mossad. Because this is another thing you talked about just that the U.S. media does not talk about the apartheid that's going on in Israel. They're not talking about the annexation. It's just like an everyday thing. You know, what the hell? Let's, you know, they don't talk about the extra judicial killing of Palestinians, including someone, a young guy going to his sister's wedding or someone who's autistic that got murdered in broad daylight. And with this, imagine if her father was uh, one of the mullahs in Iran, you know, I'm just making that, <laughs> how big of a story this would be. Her father was a Mossad agent. This is by, he was outed by the British intelligence service. That's right. Her father was behind the kidnapping of Venuno, Mordechai Venuno. That's right. Who basically spilled the beans on Israel's nuclear weapons program. Uh, and then they lured him outside of the UK into Cyprus, wherever, you know, you know the story, he got kidnapped. We've had him on our show. That's right. Uh, Mordechai Vonunu, and now he's living like he can't leave the country. So his, her father was a Mossad agent. He, her father, was behind supplying weapons to the Haganah That's in right. 1947 That's right. and 1948. Uh, he was smuggling weapons from the Czech Republic before, it, you know, during the USSR, of course, because he's originally from there, from Czechoslovakia. He's a, he's a Czechoslovakian Jew who immigrated to uh, basically uh, to the UK. So he's a dual citizen. And he was supplying plane parts during, you that's know, right. that's a very important. And after he died mysteriously, by the way. There's a whole story, like he fell off his board, he drowned, we don't know what happened. They said he had suffered a heart attack. And of course, he's a big fraudster. He was like, he defrauded uh, corporations and banks in, in the UK for more than 400,000 British pounds. And he's living somewhere, uh, he's living in, you know, having good time in the Bahamas uh, and uh, had his own private boat and then all of a sudden he falls and he dies. Yeah, so there right. is a, this is a big story. I mean, the, I mean, but aside no from the connection with, yeah. the, and you know, no one is talking about, no one is talking about this. No one is talking about that. But to listen, me, this is, this is incredible. But let's be clear. 
uh, her father was a committed Zionist his entire life, not just a fraudster, but a committed Zionist his whole life who was supporting the apartheid state. But we'll never hear anything about that as part of the trajectory and story of uh, her connection with Epstein. Just guess what? When he died drowning, they brought his body to Israel, to Palestine, to Jerusalem, and he's buried now uh, at the Mount of Olives. Oh, God. And, and he brought him, and his funeral was attended by Yitzhak Shamir. He was then the prime minister. It was attended by the Israeli president, Hayim Herzog, okay? And it was attended by no less than six serving and former heads of Israeli intelligence. Well, okay. How, I, how, big, how big is this? Well, I'll tell you, we've, we've, we've provided more information about the Zionist-Israeli connection to Jeffrey Epstein and his associate, Gisan Maxwell, in 10 minutes, Jamal, than the last five years on mainstream media. That, that tells you about the conspiracy of silence around the practices of, uh, of the Israeli apartheid state. That's really disturbing. So we'll be following the story. We have because to. This is new. We'll, we'll continue with this. Uh, in, in two minutes, Jess, I had to put you under the gun. Give us the latest update and, uh, on, well, Jabal, on, on the Well, Jabal, I mean, you know, in, in many ways, this should be one of our top stories because as we continue to find out, the, the, the situation with the coronavirus continues to spiral out of control. And that's the best way to talk about it. Last week, we were talking about spikes. Today, what we're talking about is that the coronavirus in the United States is literally out of control. We're getting 50,000 plus new cases diagnosed every single day in the United States. In five or six states like Arizona, Texas soon, and soon in Florida, there will be no more ICU beds. They will be completely full. California in the south is getting to the same spot. Unfortunately, Jamal, because the wearing of the mask has become a, a political effort and people don't believe in science, and people believe that reopening meant that they could just do whatever they want to, we're seeing that the coronavirus is out of control. Let's be clear, Jamal, this is not the second wave. We're still in the first wave. And if projections keep going the way they look like, we could be getting 100,000 new cases uh, a day of coronavirus. One thing that you should know about in Arizona, which the ICU beds are full, the infection rate, which means the number of people uh, that are infected per uh, the test being given out, it's bad if it's 6% or 5%. The WHO says if it's 5% or above, it's really bad. Yesterday in Arizona, the percentage of positive tests, 28% Jamal. Wow. So it's it's really bad. It's catastrophic. Um, people are still not wrapping their minds around it. And I'm afraid to tell our listeners and our viewers, you should be practicing social distancing. You should be wearing a mask because in the future, it's going to get a lot worse than it is now. And don't listen to Donald Trump. Listen to scientists. I, I think you should listen to uh, <laughs> Anthony Fauci, the, uh, the uh, lieutenant governor of Texas yesterday said, 
we're not going to listen to Tony Fauci, Dr. Fauci. Uh, what does he know yes. about this? Yeah. So yeah. this is the climate that we live in, unfortunately. Well, uh, the Texas, in, the the hospitals in Texas are now full. They uh, are. I, I just saw a show about it. That they're not. It's kind of almost the same scenario that we've seen with New York in the early stages. So uh, we're coming uh, to another end of a uh, of Arab talk on KPOO San Francisco. Um, if you want to listen uh, to all of our shows, go to our website, arabtalkradio.com. We have all of our podcasts there. And also, I want to thank our viewers on YouTube and on Facebook. We'll see you next week. See you next week. Mm-hmm.